This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I'm feeling grateful this week, as it's our last show prior to the Thanksgiving holiday. So take this moment to say, Ashley, I'm grateful to be with you. Ah, thanks, Zach. Yeah. Grateful to be with you, too. And we have a kind of post-Thanksgiving Day-themed episode this week. <laughs> yes, we do. We're talking about the economy, and since we're all about to do a lot of Black Friday shopping. Cyber Monday, Amazon shopping. <laughs> yes, all of, all of that. We figured it was a good time to think a little bit more about our consumer choices and how they may or may not uh, align with our Catholic values. And to help us do that, we are talking to Catherine Judge. Catherine is the Harvey J. Goldschmidt Professor of Law at Columbia Law School and the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. She's looking at places like Amazon, places like Walmart, which get a lot of play in the in the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and looking at, you know, where does this stuff come from? Uh, who's creating it? Who's being hurt uh, along those supply chains? And, and steps you can take in your own life without, you know, becoming a complete ascetic, just to be more conscious about what you're buying. This book made a pretty big splash in the economics world, but Catherine actually is Catholic and has a lot of Catholic values that are baked into this book sort of implicitly. Um, and so it was fun to get a chance to talk with her a little bit more about some of the spirituality behind some of the choices that she's making. Yes. And Catherine is also a bourbon and whiskey fan. So she, when we asked what we were drinking this week, she said anything with bourbon or whiskey. So you made us some delicious old fashioned. Yes. Although I swapped the simple syrup with uh, some Luxardo cherry liqueur, which is, uh, if you've never done that, it's a, it's a great old fashioned hack. So. All right. Cheers. And in Signs of the Times, we are talking to our colleague, Kevin Clark, who is in Baltimore right now reporting on the annual fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. We love those aha moments that come with learning, you know, when a topic finally makes sense or you learn a cool new fact. Yeah, and that happened to me just recently when I was listening to the course from Wondrium called Gnosticism, From Nag Hammadi to the Gospel of Judas. And that was a new fact for me right in the title. I did not know that there was a non-canonical Gospel of Judas. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Gnosticism, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, Pope Francis is talking about it. It's its always been trending, so to speak. Um, and, you know, Getting a lot of knowledge from that. And with One Dream, we get to learn about whatever we want, whenever we want, whether it's Nazism or wine or how to brew beer. Um, there's unlimited access to thousands of hours of audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more. Yes, and every One Dream topic is presented by amazing teachers who are actual experts in their fields. So find your next aha moment by signing up for One Dream. Right now, One Dream is offering our listeners 50% off your first three months. 
Yeah, you're going to love this. And that's like half off when you sign up for the quarterly plan. Um, that's a fantastic deal. Um, but to get that, you have to sign up through our special URL to get that offer, which is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week, we are bringing on our colleague, Kevin Clark, who is down in Baltimore to cover the U.S. Bishop's annual fall meeting. Welcome to Jesuitical, Kevin. Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, we're going to try to... uh... Make this interesting for people? Well, yeah, I, I feel like we were talking beforehand. I feel like most of the audience probably doesn't follow this typically, the bishop's annual meeting. Um, but it, it is important because any any headline that you read over the next like three years that is like U.S. bishops say or do X that either makes you happy or sad, a lot of that originates uh, at this meeting in particular right here. So we have a new president, Archbishop Timothy Broglio, um, who's coming from the uh, military archdiocese, I believe. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's Archbishop of the U.S. military. What is that role? And then maybe could you give us an introduction to who he is? I don't believe the Archbishop was ever an active duty chaplain in the U.S. military, but he was appointed to that role 10 years ago. He has a pretty extensive background in the sort of the diplomatic corps of the Vatican and has been trained at the, the Gregorian Institute. He's got some you know Jesuit training uh, in his background. He's perceived not as a, you know, a, a kind of a rabid culture warrior, which I think a lot of people are concerned about happening uh, again here at this at this vote, but more of a moderate, but perhaps not the change of direction that a lot of folks were hoping to see uh, this election cycle. Mm. And what does the president of the USCCB actually do? The U.S. Catholic Conference is, you know, I don't know how familiar average Catholics are with this giant operation in Washington. It's sort of the infrastructure behind uh, what the U.S. bishops do as a collective body in the United States. So there's a lot of people working on public policy. There's a lot of people working uh, as lobbyists, talking to people in Washington, uh, establishing what the priorities of the uh, conference uh, will be for the upcoming, uh, in this case, three years, and then how to turn those priorities into either actual um, programs uh, that the bishops undertake themselves or sort of lobbying efforts that they're going to take to Washington for the various, and particularly things like immigration, uh, or pro-life issues, um, the Catholic mobilizing uh, uh, network on the death penalty is a U.S. bishop's initiative. So things along those lines. So I saw a lot of commentary on Twitter after after he was elected president about how he is an anti-Francis bishop. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Do you think that's a fair <laughs> characterization? Did you hear anything at the meeting that that would give you that impression? Well, he was asked directly at the press conference, his first press conference as president-elect, um, how he thought his election played on, along that theme. And I think like many bishop, bishops who are accused of being not Francis bishops, he said, what are you talking about? No, I'm, I'm in full communion with the church. Francis is a brother bishop uh, to me. And as far as I know, we're, we're you know, uh, simpatico. Um, I think it really reflects sort of the divide in within the U.S. church and the way we perceive things, perhaps in the media in and in a, the academic level. Um, there are bishops who quite literally are Francis bishops. They were appointed by Francis. They were elevated to, to uh, Episcopal status by Francis. Many of the bishops here were elevated by Benedict and by uh, St. John Paul II. So, I mean, in that sense, they're not Francis bishops. But I think it, it what we're trying to say there, it gets more to tone and engagement with the broader society, right? Like if you're a Francis bishop, you're 
you perhaps are taking a more pastoral approach to sort of these neurologic issues that we're constantly dealing with, like same-sex marriage and abortion. Uh, if you're not uh, a Francis Bishop, you're perhaps more willing to engage uh, visibly uh, with the culture on those issues in a way that it frankly turns off a lot of Catholics. For example, the fight we saw over denying communion to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, that yeah. that's sort of like one of the, the, the crucial ones is this willingness to engage on, on the Eucharist uh, with, with pro-choice Democrat Catholic uh, political leaders. For instance, you know, Joe Biden now has become a target for those kinds of cultural warrior bishops that rightly or wrongly we would say are not Francis bishops. They would certainly, I don't think, ever characterize themselves that way. And is uh, specifically like the new leadership, Archbishop Brolio, like what's his record on some of these culture war issues that you bring up? Well, he has uh, on the issue of, for instance, of the sex abuse crisis, he has in fact doubled down on his position of a few years ago that homosexuality has was sort of a primary driver of that crisis. Uh, this sort of um, flies in the face of the church's own findings through the, the commission, uh, the study it commissioned, the John Jay report, which found that uh, you know, pedophilia is a kind of pathology that defies th that easy categorization. These are crimes of opportunity. They're just as likely to molest a child who's a female as opposed to a male. It really depends on, on sadly, on, on them getting access to a victim. Archbishop Rolio, like a lot of people who, who represent sort of the social, socially conservative wing of the church, insists that this is a problem of homosexuality in the priesthood. Um, and, you know, in a way that sort of, that allows them to move past the issue, right? We don't really have to struggle with it quite so much. We just have to get rid of gay priests, which good luck with that. Mm -hmm. Which is connected to another um, concern I've seen raised about Archbishop Brolio, which is he was a secretary for a, a, a Vatican cardinal, I believe, Cardinal Sedano. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that, <laughs> that one, I was kind of, now I know that Archbishop Brolio came in second in the last election. So I guess it should have not been as big a surprise that he was a front runner again this time. But he does have a past 11-year relationship with Cardinal Sodano, who has sort of become, you know, rightly or wrongly, the, the repository of Sodano that mm -hmm. he primarily um, suppressed efforts to to hunt and, and, and track and remove pedophile priests around the world. Father Maciel in Mexico uh, was a notorious... Uh, abuser of children, drug addict, embezzler. I mean, this guy turned out to be the, the most rotten of rotten eggs. And he was, uh, 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 by many, by all appearances, protected by Sudano for many years, including the years that um, Archbishop Brolio was uh, sort of the aide de camp there in, in Rome for Sudano. So with all of that, how should we consider what the direction of the conference is going to be for the next three years? Like, what are, what are they saying their priorities are? Because um, I think a lot of this is people reading into it. Um, so maybe like in their own yeah. words, what do they say is going to be a focus for the next three years? It seems like they're, what they want to talk about is the Eucharistic revival, which uh, last year they said was going to cost $28 million. And this year it's only going to cost 14 I think if, if Archbishop Brolio represents anything, it's sort of a steady as you go. Uh, we're going to see a lot of what we saw the last three years under Archbishop Gomez. You know, I was hoped that Gomez might be more moderate and not take such a big um, role as a culture warrior. Also, occasionally he did. I think we're going to see something similar with Archbishop Brolio. Um, I don't know if he's going to be going looking for for fights, but he I don't think he's going to shy away from them. He has uh, already said he's happy to talk to the biggest, uh, most powerful Catholic in this country, Joe Biden, uh, whenever the president wants to. Archbishop Gomez was never able to do that, perhaps because 
he started off kind of on the wrong foot with the with President Biden by instead of congratulating him on his election, scolding him about his um, pro-choice position. I think that'll be very telling if he is able to meet with Joe Biden and have a you know more or less conciliatory uh, conversation with him. Uh, you know, I don't think he's going to shy away from what the church believes about pro-life or says about pro-life issues. But there are there there are many places where the church, the conference, and the Biden administration can work together, and uh, so. I think that's what we should be looking for. Are they able to find common ground on the issues that they can find common ground on? Or in fact, is the conference just going to be sort of a tool to uh, ratchet against the Democrats for the GOP, which is what they've been accused of being for the last three years? All right. Kevin, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, You can find his coverage of the U.S. Bishops meeting at americamagazine.org. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, guys. And now stick around for our conversation with Catherine Judge. Joining us in studio is Catherine Judge. Catherine is a Harvey J. Goldschmidt professor of law at Columbia Law School and the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, I'm excited to uh, break this down a little bit. Black Friday's coming up, so about to do a lot of shopping, um, a lot of not directly from the source shopping <laughs> in particular. I'm wondering if maybe like we could start with, uh, you have a, this anecdote in the book of going to a Walmart um, and getting a bunch of good deals and that causing a, a, a bunch of Catholic guilt within you. <laughs> I was going to say, always a good place to start. Catholic um, Yes. Uh, plenty of that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, one of the things I hadn't realized before is that most Americans actually live quite close to a Walmart. Those of us in New York City don't get there quite as often. But we were out in the country for a long weekend staying at my aunt's country house and very excited to be away in the woods with our three-year-old and our three-month-old. And we had, despite the fact that we were parents the second time around, this was the first time we were getting away with our youngest. And so we were overly idealistic that we don't need that much stuff. You know, we'll just bring the basics. And then, of course, you get out there and you realize, no, actually, a lot of the little things that you don't think you need, the extra pacifier and and, and the like, uh, suddenly looked really helpful. So I was like, you know what? As long as I'm making a grocery run, I'll just go to Walmart instead. I'll pick up the extra pacifier and then I'll be set to go. And I thought this was going to be a nice quick trip. Of course, I get in there and I am both overwhelmed but also tantalized by everything I see. So I get the huge cart. This is right before Thanksgiving. So suddenly they have the deals everywhere you go. It's right before the Black Friday Christmas shopping. So, you know, I'm loading up. And first of all, the food just looks like these great deals. I'm like, oh, I'll get a little of this. And I was like, oh, this like really fun little like gingerbread kit. Like that would be a really fun <laughs> thing to do. And like then I started thinking about early Christmas shopping that I definitely don't need to do, but suddenly looks really tempting. And And before I knew it, I had passed an insane amount of time and I was loading bag after bag after bag into our station wagon. And sadly, I think that's actually more representative of my life than I think I would like it to be. Uh, It was realizing that like so often that the quest for convenience in my day to day just meant I was not only consuming too much, but just like buying a lot of things that in some ways I didn't need. And more importantly for the book, when I started to look at them more closely, uh, I really wasn't appreciating the impact of everybody else and the the people and the places that were affected 
by the production process and the the long chains through which that got to me. So it was that sudden moment of realizing that, you know, my life didn't fully align with my values and and it still doesn't. Well, we joke about Catholic guilt, but you seem like someone who does think deeply about your faith and seeing how it intersected with how you buy goods. And so what were you bringing to bear from Catholic tradition when you were thinking about this? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's almost the opposite of Catholic guilt. I mean, there's clearly some sense of responsibility and a sense of really wanting to do differently and awareness of the way that I struggle with that. Um, But one of the things that actually brought me back to the faith, I I had taken some time away and engaged in meditation and then really came back uh, through a struggling but, but meaningful path for me was realizing that we all are sinners in some ways. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think one of the the power, the powers that faith gives me is the ability to, to look honestly at those times where I'm like, oh, I'm really not living up to my values. But rather than just like turning a blind eye to that and ignoring mm-hmm. that because it's just like more than I can bear, it's like, no, this is actually something I need to, to look at more closely and then figure out how to grapple with and how to address going forward. That's so interesting because um, one of the things we were talking about is that when you're participating in structures that are just so big that, like, it's so easy to be like, to you know, read this book and think about how bad, you know, the Walmarts, the Amazons, and we can get into exactly why those are bad. But at the end of the day, like, we're still participating in this system, and it's, like, really, really hard to not participate. And so... It's, there's a great temptation to just kind of be like, well, there's no point then. Yeah, right? and, and you start with a your anecdote is, you know, I guess you didn't need all that stuff from Walmart, but there are times when people <laughs> are in the middle of nowhere and they, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and they need formula for their baby and they can go and get it. So there are like these real real goods that that come with it. So it, it yeah, that just like tension of seeing the critique but feeling trapped and also having the benefits of it, like – it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And, and it's all of the above. I mean, I really write for the book uh, from a place of struggle and where I'm still struggling with this because it is a lot easier to get through life with a lot of things. And there's a very, very simple and much smaller life that I could leave that I think in some ways would be more in line with my values. But then I love everything I get to do. I love being able to write a book. I love being able to teach my students. I love to be able to connect with colleagues at other schools. And then I love to support my husband as he does all those things and have time with my kids. And so suddenly the the extra minutes I save uh, through these different mechanisms also buy up opportunity to be impactful in other ways. So it's really not about there being a single right answer and more just being struck that we live in this world where it feels like we have like so much access to so many goods. And like, I mean, we live a comfortable life. But at core, like what you want is to lead an ethical life and not being able to feel comfortable that I am uh, is is a real struggle. I wonder if we could define the problem a little bit more. I'm wondering if there's like a quick way that you respond if someone's like, yeah, I guess like Walmart, I know they're kind of bad because they push out the mom and pop. And yeah, I guess Amazon, might, the, the boxes seem like a lot of waste. But otherwise, like I don't, I really don't understand what the problem is. Yeah, I mean, so part of what's interesting is that it's not that there's like a problem, right? And what the book really documents is that these two connected trends. And one is the rise of these much larger intermediaries. And I think Amazon and Walmart are two examples of middlemen that we see every day. But there's a lot of them behind them. Like, so if you're interested in food, there's Cargill and these other kind of really large food companies and Nestle. Uh, So the way we have these large middlemen and the way that then like feeds and is really fed by these really long and fragile supply chains 
And so what the book does is it really traces in so many different domains the way the very nature of production and the nature of work have been changed by these two interlocking processes, right? And so it used to be you actually knew uh, the people that that were involved in producing your food. I mean, we were talking before this show started, I have to admit, like all four of my grandparents grew up on farms in the middle of the Great Depression. So like they knew where the food come from, but everybody else that they were growing the food for was also part of a community. So there was a real sense and an understanding of the people and the places that were impacted by the consumption choices you're making. And so you're going back to your point over, yeah. sometimes you need these things. <laughs> yeah. But some of it also is I think at this point we are we are really systematically and structurally blinded to the workers and the environmental impact of so much of our consumption in ways that do change our behavior and, and certainly change mine. Yeah. So can you pull back the curtain on an item that you think really demonstrates these supply chains you're talking about and the hidden costs that come with it? Yeah, I mean, and sometimes you could look at one item and so they've done like some, there's a really great book, for example, like looking at a pair of jeans, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about cotton, it's an incredibly resource intensive industry. The chemicals that go into growing cotton are significant. The water consumption is significant. The environmental impact of each of the different stages is significant. Seven of the top 10 countries that are actually exporters of cotton uh, use forced labor somewhere in the production process. So it's an, just incredible. And then again, so it's incredibly horrifying statistics. But it's not just that one pair of jeans. It's that if you look at something like clothing, the number of the items of clothing that we buy and shoes that we buy are two to three times, you know, what they, our grandparents did. And it's it's trending upward each and every year. And the amount that end up in landfill, if you look at textile waste, is also going up every single year. So it's more an overall pattern uh, that I'm, you know, again, I, I engage in as much as others where we start to buy more. It has more, the process of production is incredibly uh, environmentally destructive and really oftentimes involves labor practices that you would find abhorrent if you saw directly. Um, and then we're instead also filling up a bunch of landfills. And so it's an overall process that, that I think builds on itself. And what are the things that are shielding us from experiencing some of this directly? Because on a you know personal level, if I <laughs> the act of walking down the street, walking into Gap, buying a pair of jeans, walking out, does not feel particularly like I am... <laughs> Be like supporting forced labor a world away. So what are all of the things in place to kind of make me feel comfortable and okay with doing that? Yeah, I mean, so what's interesting about it is one of the things the book explores is that, or I explore and direct, is I think it's a combination of like this effort at ever more efficiency. And as you had these larger and larger middlemen, it suddenly meant the process of disaggregating production seemed like it would make things cheaper, right? Like you do every little step at the place could do so more cheaply. And oftentimes the places that can do so most cheaply are doing so most cheaply either because they're not respecting the environmental impact in the same way or they're relying on significantly cheaper labor. And, and cotton, partly the, the process of picking has always been very labor intensive in ways that have tended towards uh, exploitation, really, of workers. Um, but then there also is the the mechanism that these really large middlemen are changing the rules, right? So, so I mentioned Cargill, for example. It's actually the largest private company out there. Uh, at one point, 14 billionaires were part of their founding company, so people really don't, I think, appreciate how powerful it is. Well, they also changed the rules around trade. They had this beautiful website, fedbytrade.com, and it was all about how how trade was actually helping to facilitate uh, consumption. That I did want to ask, so is there is 
the middleman economy just a synonym for globalized capitalism? Or is there something distinct that you can you can be okay with trade and capitalism, but be against the middleman of economy? I mean, I think there's a lot of efforts right now to re-understand what we mean by capitalism. And I see understanding the middleman economy and finding a way to work with it as part of that. And again, it's not going back against globalization. I mean, I think going back to the question of faith, one of the things that I think is so important about our faith is it's an appreciation of the dignity of every single human being. And while globalization has exacerbated inequality within countries, it's also helped to reduce inequality between countries. And so trying to figure out how we can understand, well, this created work that was less meaningful and allowed certain types of exploitation, but that globalized way of helping to connect and build trade not only made our lives richer in terms of the types of goods that we could get, but also helped to create opportunity for people who didn't otherwise have it. And so then part of what's really interesting is how we can harness technology and you can have these really great entrepreneurs who are finding ways to bridge cultures and create goods in ways that are more sustainable, more accountable, and transparency is part of it. And almost always there's a, a much shorter supply chain, so you have more understanding that comes around it. One of the like most direct connections to faith that I was thinking about is just the proximity. Like Pope Francis is talking all the time about accompaniment being like an essential part of being a Christian. And I don't think he's usually meaning it in this way. The, the example you give here is like a farmer, right? Like a farmer in your community and you are seeing them work and toil and put their sweat into the food that you're going to eat. Um, you are, even as a consumer, <laughs> accompanying your neighbor, right? Um, and so much of what like globalization has brought, it's brought me in some ways like way closer to someone like half a world away. Um, but it has driven me further from the people that I like spend most of my time with. It's a great way of putting it. And part of what's interesting, and I, I use the example of community-sponsored agriculture, which are these farms where you kind of give money at the beginning of the year, you participate in activities, you take what they grow. Uh, so, for example, Genesis Farms, which is the CSA that, that I'm a member of and where I spend time, it's not just that I see the farmers working. It's primarily that I see how hard that they are working in the fields, but they also have events where you go and you're digging up the carrots and the sweet potatoes. So you're part of the labor and part of the land. And part of what's really interesting is when I started to dig into the research, because I'm an academic, so that's what I do. I like, live my life, and then I'm like, okay, there's something weird going on here. Like, let me look at what a bunch of other academics have done when they're studying it, is they've really found when they give things like CSA memberships. Um, can you can you <coughs> Sorry. Yeah, so CSA, as I tried to just define, yeah. is a community-sponsored agriculture. So community-sponsored agriculture is the idea of farms where you you make a usually a commitment at the beginning of the, the the growing season. You say, I'll pay you a chunk, and then I get a pro rata share of whatever you grow. So if you grow extra, then I get like extra corn and tomatoes. If you grow less, I grow less. If you want to grow a bunch of vegetables that I don't really like, I'm going to take a share of those. Um, I have been trying to join a CSA for like five years now, I think, but I always remember at the end of the growing season or the middle of the growing season. So it's not worked out for me. So if one of you could just personally yes. remind me <laughs> next spring, could you sign up? That'd be great. Anyway, you were you were saying that they, yeah. they also have events and you're, you're going to these places. Yeah, but part of what's also really interesting is research is, first of all, one is that they're really popular, right? That's completely contrary to all of our instinctive notions, right? Like generally thinking you want low prices, you want choice, you want convenience. And I got so interesting because it was like, this is the thing I love. I signed up more because it seemed like the neighborly thing to do. 
But then I realized that, no, actually, statistically, they're really growing in popularity, even though they're incredibly inconvenient. You end up with a bunch of vegetables that you're like, oh, my gosh, now I have to cook this thing. I don't even know how to cook it. I don't even know what it is. Um, <laughs> rhubarb pie for <laughs> every meal. I, there's, there's I love rhubarb. There's something so Catholic about being like looking at limitation, right? In this case, it's you know, you've got an overabundance of rhubarb. But, like, sometimes it's, like, looking at, like, your your own sin and, like, watching grace come out of a limitation, right? Like, oftentimes I don't think we lean into that enough. Um, I think there's, like, a real Catholic imagination in there. But it does, like, it's insane because you're paying more money to dig up your own carrots and get worse, or at least worse variety, selection, selection of, of of something. What, why Why are people attracted to that then? And I think it's because it actually feeds a deeper need that we have that, again, I don't think is not reconcilable with capitalism or with Catholicism, but where you – I mean, it's just the opposite. I think our, our faith uh, pulls us to it, uh, but where you have to bring other things to the table, right? So a lot of what has happened over, I think, over the last – couple of generations, and I don't think it's been endemic in all of capitalism, but over the last couple of generations, has really to make these like simplified assumptions. It's if you're an investor, you want nothing but, you know, maximizing your risk-adjusted returns. If you're a consumer, you just want the lowest price for the good you're getting. Um, and it's all about the individual maximizing their individual well-being. And of course, what we're seeing is an epidemic of loneliness and people who are isolated. And part of what we're realizing is, no, like faith and community and a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose actually are all things we have to, to bring to the table for ourselves and cultivate spaces where we can start to, to create those opportunities for others and create those, those opportunities for connection. And so part of it is trying to really reconcile uh, that capitalism is not one structure. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a it's a system of organizing economic relationships that can be embedded in an environment where people bring a much wider range of values to the table. But then, what it looks like, going to your earlier question, is probably not the middleman economy. It's probably yes, there's intermediaries and yes, there's long supply chains, but there's a lot greater choice in ways that create different types of opportunities for work, different types of opportunities for connection, different types of opportunities for community. So you 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 say say as like a great example of what a direct economy can can look like, but you also say it's not a panacea. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think like you can feed New York City with CSAs alone. And on some level, it feels like privilege to be even even have the time and the money to be able to go to New Jersey. And so, is this like a <laughs> upper middle class problem to even think about this? Like most people just want to go to Walmart and get it cheap. Yeah. So a couple things to that. One. Um, so the idea here is not that direct's going to be a solution to any of this, right? It is direct. I use the term cornerstone very often, uh, which will be familiar to all of your listeners. But really, you know, cornerstone really is a very small piece in a much larger and more elaborate uh, edifice. But it's a critical piece because it allows us to start seeing and cultivating the awareness that we're otherwise not paying attention to. And again, in particular, I mean, that's like, like discernment is such a core part of the Jesuit tradition. And so a lot of it is like, what is it that I'm actually already doing that is having impacts I don't see? And what are ways that I can start to become more aware of what I'm not seeing? And so the idea for anybody is probably direct. It's a very modest part of your overall lifestyle choices. But that very modest part can have a very significant impact on what are the political choices you're making? What are the structures that you're otherwise opting into and supporting? And what are the structures that you're working to change? 
Uh, and privilege is a really interesting question. It's one that I struggle with constantly, right? Uh, I mean, I have enough money to be affluent to be able to like go into these spaces, and and I'm coming at this as a white woman uh, with with all of the privilege that comes along with it. Uh, specifically in the CSA context, you know, researchers have also like dealt with this by trying to say like, okay, like what happens if we make CSA memberships available to people who are otherwise using government food benefits. Mm -hmm. And going to your point, I mean, you actually have a high rate of people who are opting in and then dropping out because I have a car so I can get there. A lot of people don't have a vehicle. And so if you have a job where you have no control of your flexibility and you're relying on public transportation, it's really hard. But what they found for the people who stick around, they end up eating more vegetables. They end up learning how to cook new types of vegetables. They take meaning from it that they hadn't otherwise expected. And it's like in a statistically significant way, which is what, you know, matters for these purposes. It actually changes their consumption habits and also changes their appreciation of where their food is coming from. Uh, so I think like right now we can think about it as a luxury good, but it goes back to trying to think about like, well, what is it we're trying to do in terms of creating a meaningful life? And so Walmart enables one type of life. Um, and, and again, I don't think we need to eliminate Walmart. I think Walmart can be part of it. Uh, but it's a question of like the relative role that it's playing relative to other ways of sourcing. And like the last thing I'll say in Walmart are workers who have lost their jobs at companies that used to be based in the U.S. and have incredible pain about the fact that they are now unemployed and have limited, limited means and almost no professional opportunities, which drives them all the more to Walmart, even in circumstances where they know Walmart was yeah. the reason that they ended up losing their job. And it goes back to the question about capitalism. So it's like, do we wear a worker hat and a consumer hat and an investor hat? Or do we start to kind of come to the world as a more integrated person with more awareness of the the multi-dimensional multi nature of the effects of our actions? It's funny because Walmart is not unaware of this dynamic. I just noticed recently, it's probably in the last six months, I was driving and I, I they've got this whole like sub-brand of Walmart neighborhood market. Hmm. The whole idea being like, oh no, we're not multinational <laughs> corporation Walmart. We're your neighborhood market. Um, one thing I wanted to pivot to is uh, I actually think that um, parishes in the United States used to kind of facilitate like these direct relationships, both on like a social level. Um, like you could find a babysitter. Yeah. The bulletin, <laughs> yeah. you could find a babysitter at a parish. You could, you know, you you went to church with your farmer. Like there was sort of this like central hub that like distributed community in a lot of different ways. I don't know that I think the parish model is dying a bit. Um, and I don't know that we're going back to that, but I'm wondering if you see a place where, uh, the church either through advocacy or maybe on a more day-to-day -day level can help uh, facilitate some more, I don't know, either direct or ethical consumption choices. Yeah, I mean, I think the, first of all, I think the church, many churches already are in many different ways. And I agree with you, unfortunately. I mean, I think traditionally that was a core part of the community and it also shaped where we made these decisions, right? I mean, it wasn't just like the, it was the back page of that bulletin mm -hmm. and it used to be so full of all our, all these different small businesses this is my in the dentist. area. This is, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it really did. And it, it, it made connections and community multidimensional. And you still have that back page, but like the number of businesses that are advertising yeah. there are few Mostly and <laughs> And they've just like left it blank. There's not even like, they don't put house ads or like resize the ads so that it fills up the whole page. It, it's like so it's sad. <laughs> 
That being said, I think there's a lot of ways that churches have and can continue to play this role. Um, I mean, I think that's part of the, the the synod process that we're also currently going through is really trying to figure out how you get bottom-up feedback that helps to reinvigorate and create energy in the life of the church um, and how to integrate those together. And I do think it's too bad. I think right now, too often, the church isn't associated with a lot of the values that are foundational to the church. Yeah, I was going to ask that because if you ask Catholics or non-Catholics, like when you think of the Catholic church like in politics, like what do you think? It's, it's abortion. It's immigration. Sometimes it's, you know, life and death issues. Um, I personally don't hear that much about economic justice from like church leadership. And then if you look at the gospel, there's a whole lot about, <laughs> about it. So I'm curious what, what your experience has been like as a Catholic, like what you observe and what you hear. Even among like, I don't know, like in educated circles, like the typical just like wash away responses. Well, the church isn't fully on board with capitalism or fully on board with socialism. And that just sort of ends the conversation, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I mean, so it's interesting. So I teach at Columbia Law School. I'm actually the vice dean for intellectual life right now. And yeah, I will say Dobbs, unfortunately, I think, has become the lightning rod for this is what it means to have faith-influenced policymaking. On the other end of the spectrum— Dobbs being the Supreme Court case Dobbs being the Supreme Court case that that struck down Roe v. Wade. And regardless, I think, of how you feel about that decision, having that— be seen as the core way that faith and policymaking come together, I think is quite unfortunate, partly because of the change in, like, there's a legitimacy question that I think a lot of people struggle with in terms of the court changing its mind, the relationship with the Supreme Court and Congress and politics and the judiciary. But that's a whole different story. I, I think the bigger and more interesting issue is how we actually get back to what you see in the Gospels, right? And so I'll say, for me, I do it partly through the choices I make uh, with consumption investment, partly through what I m- choices I make through advocacy and engagement. And actually, a lot of the core of the faith is not issues that affect a small number of people, but issues that affect a huge number of people. And if we think about the fact that there's, you know, an uh, incredible actually increase. I mean, I think if you look at the statistics, that the global malnutrition might be at the highest level it's been in almost a century as a result of COVID and the climate crisis and and the current wars that are currently happening, I, I think it's actually very meaningful to be able to say, look, these can intersect in incredibly positive ways as well. You, you have a you have a chapter that is basically commercial for CSAs and <laughs> joining, joining community-supported agriculture. If you can, I mean, the whole point there, actually, I should say, is not to join your CSA. It's fine, whatever suits you. I'm very honest that it's like very good for a tiny, tiny number of people, but I can only write from what I know. Yeah. Maybe a good place to start to wrap up is uh, we're not going to tear down the the system of the middleman economy in, in a month, but, you know, holidays are coming up, Black Friday's coming up. What are a couple things that people listening to this could do, uh, some choices they could make that would maybe make their, their consumption a little more ethical, maybe a little more direct, and support some of their neighbors and other producers? Yeah, so I think rather than focusing about what we can tear down, I think focusing on what we can build up tends to be more productive. It tends to feel more meaningful. And and that's also where you realize you're not just doing this because it's the right thing you do. Is you're doing this because you actually can find joy and meaning in doing it. So it is finding, first of all, one or two areas where you want to go to direct. And 
And maybe that means going to your local brewery, going to your local coffee shop. Where Subscribing to your beans. favorite Catholic magazine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Always a good idea. <laughs> but, but finding just one or two places and then seeing how you feel about it. And the other is like, go ahead if you want to and, and buy as much as you want on Black Friday. It's hard to resist. And then take a step back and, and use the practices that we've developed as members of the church and as people who engage in Jesuit practice of discernment. I mean, really spend some time sitting with like how you ended up feeling after all that. Like, do you feel closer to God? Are you feeling further away? And like, spend, you know, do those check-ins throughout the holiday season and start to see how that shapes what you want to do. And again, because I do think structural problems require structural solutions, I'd say ethical consumption is not the answer to the challenges we're facing. It is creating structures that actually make it easier for everybody, whether they're Catholic or, or agnostic or atheist, to, to actually be part of a, a more ethical uh, system. And so kind of from what you've learned uh, through the choices you've made and through the, that practice of discernment, uh, what are the policies that you want to see and how can you help to be part of the the change if you think change is in order? All right. Well, that was a great Ignatian place to end. Um, but we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Well, I have to say after this whole conversation, it is so hard not to think about Mike, who's like the head farmer at the CSA, who's living. And again, he he grew up Catholic and he actually spent a lot of time um, actively working his faith early on. But he's just somebody where you see him, his eyes are clear because he spends his whole time constantly responding to land and then really also cultivating an incredibly rich community around him. You know, teaching, he mentors young farmers who then go off and create their own farms that are more mindful of the land. And he's attuned to all of the small changes uh, in the health of that land and, and that incredible awareness of, of community with others and community with the land, uh, I think would bring us all closer to our faith. All right. Well, St. Mike. Um, again, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was a real treat. Um, and Remind our listeners one more time that the book is Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source, available wherever books are sold, including Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> but you should go to your local bookstore to buy it. <laughs> that can be your one thing to do in November. <laughs> awesome. Thank, thank, thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. I've been alone before, but never with you. Your mind is not where your heart is. It all started with a conversation about donut socks. I can wear socks for National Donut Day. How cool would it be if I could wear saint socks on a saint's feast day, said Sock Religious co-founder Scott Williams. Five years later, Sock Religious is a rapidly growing company that makes not only socks, but t-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, onesies, and coffee mugs. Step on over to SockReligious.com and check it out. Use code JESUITICAL15 for 15% off your order. And now we have some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So want to give a huge shout out to a listener, uh, Chris Kincor, who um, wrote in and also posted in our Facebook group. He is 
uh, taken upon himself to uh, create a Jesuitical litany of saints. A lot of people have asked for this, and we've never really had a good way of tracking it. Um, and Chris has gone and done the work of going back through our entire catalog and documenting who a guest canonized and how many times that person has been canonized. Yeah, not only did he go back and find the saints that we have uh, created through this show, so to speak, but he has some really cool stats about it, too. Yeah, so he posted, if you want to go see this, it's in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Jesuitical. He's got the spreadsheet there. Um, but some fun facts that come out of this are that Pope Fran- including Pope Francis, Jesuits have been canonized 12 times on the podcast, which is still trailing um, the guest mom in second place at 13 times. And Dorothy Day has been canonized a whopping 17 times on the podcast. And uh, that is why there is a moratorium on Dorothy Day. Yeah, yeah. so we try to, we're trying to push people away from that <laughs> to think a little bit broader, especially since she's on her way to sainthood in real life. Um, among non-Catholics, Fred Rogers and Martin Luther King Jr. are the two most frequently canonized. Um, 12 Jesuitical saints have been canonized three or more times um, and 29 people at least twice. So that's that's hallowed ground there. Um, there's also a, a group of people who have both been canonized by other guests and been guests on the show. That list includes uh, Father James Martin, Father Greg Boyle, Father Richard Rohr, and Sister Helen Prejohn. Wow. I um, love this so much. <laughs> yeah. Huge, huge, huge thank you to Chris. Uh, thank you so much for for being interested enough in this to, to do it. Um, you got to check it out. It's super fun. So again, find that on our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And if you've been listening to the last few episodes, we've been digging into Pope Francis's catechesis on discernment. Um, and this time we thought we'd like, you know, kind of take his advice to heart and actually do some discerning about what's happening in our own lives instead of just talking about discerning. And one thing that I've been noticing over the past three months as kind of like a pattern is the staff of America has been writing daily scripture reflections um, for subscribers. And so I've done I've done a few of these, maybe three or four. Um, and I noticed that every single time I have the process of writing and publishing one of these, I have the same thought process, process which is like, I'm so bad at spirituality writing. I just have to do this. Okay, I wrote it. I think it's crap. Good headspace. Good headspace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's awful, but whatever. I'm on deadline. I have to just give it over to my colleague to publish. Um, and then, like, without fail with each of these, I've gotten, you know, you know, just one, but one email from someone who was actually touched by what I wrote. Um, and only once was it my dad who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> still counts. Yeah, it still counts. Um, but I, so I was trying to think about like, okay, what's what's going on That's a pattern internally yeah. with, with this, um, with this pattern. And I think I often, you know, think of this diminishing of my work as a kind of humility or, or that's what I tell myself. It's like, oh, I'm so humble. I just don't think I'm great at writing. If I'm honest with myself, there's there's a little bit of pride hidden in there. Like this idea that like if I write something, it, you know, it has to be great and people have to love it because anything else is below me. <laughs> and so that I think it, it was helpful for me to just name that, recognize it, and, you know, try to work on that for the next scripture reflection. What's funny is I do this in sort of a roundabout way, whereas anytime I do anything, I project, over-project confidence. And so I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> Every single thing I do, this is the best podcast, this is the best. And it's kind of a shtick. And it's like, I think it's like a haha funny thing. But I'm doing the same thing. I'm like kind of covering up for my own insecurities and my own like I really hope this is actually good and if I make the joke and you know if I project confidence first it disarms people that are you know going to maybe 
tear it apart or think it's not great or something. Yeah. And I I, I don't want to like make this seem like it's the greatest sin of all time because like I, I think a lot of people have this experience and it and it comes down to, you know, wanting to be loved and seen for for what you think is the goodness that you're putting out into yeah. the world. A little bit too expecting too much of myself um and or I guess not expecting myself to be that great could in some places be a manifestation of pride that I need to work on. What do you think is like a, a better way to approach something like that? I think having – Because I think it's like really natural yeah. whether – like we're talking about kind of media examples. But anytime you do anything, you want it to – Yeah. You want to, you want to do a good job, right? Like I don't know what – I don't know many people that put something mm-hmm. out and want it to be bad. Yeah, I know. And and I think for me it is it is focusing on – on the person on the receiving side of what I'm doing, and even if it is just that one person, but but realizing that yes, I, I have something to contribute. No, my writing is not always going to be pristine, but there is probably someone out there that it will be the right thing at the right time for, and that that should be enough for me. Hmm. I think it's it's a good approach. All right, Ignatian, enough, <laughs> enough. It is yep. enough. <laughs> All right, enough of this show. Judge Whitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashlyn McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.